want film, you know, everything's going digital. And so, I mean, the fact that it's a film convention is a little bit of an old hat kind of thing, but then to also show real film, that's also something that you can't get in most places anymore. So that's sort of special. That's why our convention is something that you should come out to, you know, instead of sitting at home and watching movies digitally or, you know, on your streaming service. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Fans make things happen. That's the theme of this episode, as I talk to Samantha Glasser, who runs a new old movie festival, David B. Pearson, one of the people behind a new old movie magazine, and Julian David Stone, author of a novel that brings the making of a classic movie to life. And as that movie star would say, Ratings at Apple Podcasts, good. Reviews, good. Please leave review if can. Thanks. The myth about classic film collectors is that they're secretive hoarders, guarding their treasures against anyone else seeing them. Maybe a few are like that, but far more often they can't wait to show what they have to their friends. And when they run out of friends to watch them, well, in the 60s and 70s, they started old movie conventions renting a hotel ballroom and setting up projectors and inviting strangers to come watch the movies and trade the stuff they collect, movies, books, posters, and more. That's certainly how Cinevent in Columbus, Ohio began. I did a podcast about its 50th anniversary convention in 2018. Cinevent was about to go through big changes then. Michael Haynes, the second-generation operator of the festival, was getting ready to turn it over to one of the attendees, Columbus native Samantha Glasser. You can hear her on that 2018 podcast, too. Don't say I can't spot a rising star. It was also about to get a new name, the Columbus Moving Picture Show. There was a little delay in that transition for 2020 reasons you can guess, But 2021 ran the festival with both names in the credits, and May 26th through 29th will at long last present the Columbus Moving Picture Show at the Renaissance Hotel in downtown Columbus. There will be a full weekend of films, dealer rooms stacked with vintage collectibles, guest appearances by authors like Scott Eyman, Alan K. Rohde, and Lisa Steinhaven, and more. There's still time to book your room and screening room ticket. So I spoke with Samantha Glasser, a.k.a. Molly Hondra, on Nitrateville, about her new stewardship of an old, old movie festival. 
You started going to Cinevent uh, at some awfully early age, especially considering the general age of people who attend such things. Um, you stood out a bit, certainly, not being a uh, 60-year-old male. And uh, uh, tell me, what, what got you interested in that? Why did you want to go hang out in a hotel ballroom watching old movies? I was 19 the first time I went to Cinevent. I wasn't sure what to expect. I was kind of nervous about it. I was actually going to be meeting some people that I knew from the Golden Silence message board. Uh, that I'd only known through the internet. So I was a little bit apprehensive about that. Um, but it was something I had actually read about in a book about movie collectibles, about um, collecting movie posters. And so it was kind of in the back of my mind for a little while. And I decided I'm just going to go. I loved old movies, really got passionate about them in high school, but I didn't know anybody in the flesh that I could talk to about them. <laughs> it was only through the internet, only through message boards. So the idea of meeting real people who liked the same things I did was really attractive. So I went and I loved it. I fell in love with it. I wasn't planning to go basically from open to close every day, but that's what ended up happening. And it became something I was really passionate about every year. I looked forward to it. Yeah, I mean, Cinevent is one of those ones that would have, like, the midnight show, you know, after all the official shows ended, somebody would just start showing something in a dealer's room or, you know, their their hotel room or whatever. So, the hotel, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it just keeps going if, you know, if you let it, so. And that was me. I would be there sometimes staying up and watching stuff in somebody's hotel room, or um, I remember one night I was there until, I think, 2 a.m., just talking in the hallway with somebody about movies and then I would drive home and get some sleep and then get up and do it all again the next day. (laughs) So what was it that appealed to you about the particular films that they played at Cinevent, do you think? Well, they're rare. The the focus of Cinevent was always to show things that you couldn't get at the time on VHS or DVD. You know, you had to see these things on film and it was real film. I had never experienced that um, closeness of the projector. You know, when I would go to the movie theater back in the day, they did show film, but you weren't there in the booth. You didn't hear the word of it. So, you know, being in the room and hearing that projector going and seeing it in person was really cool. But yeah, the rarity of the films were definitely attractive. I remember one of the ones I was really excited to see uh, early on, I'm not totally sure what year, maybe 2008, 2009, was the Fire Brigade because I had seen that Kevin Brownlow Hollywood documentary, right? And it showed that clip, which that it's such a the movie itself, it's entertaining, it's a fun movie, but it's not a great movie, you yeah. know. He, he and he says that in the documentary, but the clips that they chose, yeah, he put the highlight, <laughs> you know, the the best yes. part is in Hollywood, yes. All right, so you attended it for a number of years. I mean, by now you have uh, some kids, I know, and all that, mm-hmm. um, and presumably a life of your own. Uh, what uh, what made you think, gee, I should take that over if no one else is going to do it? <laughs> well, Michael Haynes approached me and asked me if I would be interested in eventually taking over the show, and you know, I said, well, sure, if you need me to, (laughs) 
it was one of those things where it felt like uh, something in the far distant future. <laughs> one of these days, would you be willing to come in and take over? And so he trained me over several years to kind of be prepared to do that. I didn't realize it would be as soon as it was, but you know, that it happened that way. Yeah. It actually would have been 2020 was supposed to be the last event, but we all know what happened in 2020. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, tell me what what did you want to do differently uh, with the Columbus Moving Picture Show? Not a whole lot. <laughs> um, I, I really i I think reaching out to people outreach is really important. I think getting young people in the doors and showing them these films is important. I think um, you know reaching out. Cinevent has always been sort of broad in its selection of films. So I wanted the Columbus Movie Picture Show to maintain that, but also to kind of hit those niche targets. So we're showing uh, Sail a Crooked Ship with Ernie Kovacs. Ernie Kovacs has a good hipster following. Um, we wanted to continue to show silent films. I think that's important with the live music. That's something that you can't get sitting at home, you know. And um, we're one of our focuses this year is Ted Lewis. So I I think it's cool. There's a lot of movie stars, a lot of writers and people who worked in old Hollywood who come from Ohio. And Ted Lewis is one of them. There's a museum in Circleville devoted to him. So um, we reached out to the Ted Lewis Museum. They said they had some of his films that we could run and that they would come and introduce them. So Kenneth Hopkins will be doing that for us. Um, so and then that's that you could potentially reach out to the jazz enthusiasts through right. Ted Lewis. Um, we also try to focus on old time radio. There was an old time radio convention in Cincinnati for years. And, um, you know, so there's a following there that could potentially come up to our show. So I'm just trying to hit all those targets and build the show as much as I possibly can while maintaining the integrity of the Cinevent tradition. Yeah. Now, I mean, one of the things, as you say, I mean, the point was to show things that were not readily available in uh, mm -hmm. home video formats or, you know, now streaming. And I know that, that that got harder in the last several years for Cinevent. I mean, I know the cartoons, so many of the cartoons that we all grew up on were put out at some point. So then you're really mm -hmm. looking at, like, kind of the, the B studios for for cartoons. So I remember one year, I think maybe Michael Schlesinger put together, you know, the better Columbia cartoons. I mean, Columbia cartoons really aren't that great overall, but like, what are the good ones? So, you know, uh -huh. doing things like that. What do you, where do you find kind of the, the sweet spots for things you can show that, that aren't already available? Well, we source the programs through private collections. And so we just kind of look at what's available to us through those um, and what hasn't been shown at Cinevent before, or if it has been shown, it would have been shown, you know, in the early nineties or the eighties, something like that. Right. Um, but and we try you get to, the cranky old guy said, ah, we've all seen that. It was on in 86. <laughs> and that's the thing. I'm like, I was born in 87 guys. If it was shown <laughs> right, yeah. before I was born, <laughs> we can show it again. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so we, we do try to stick to the rare stuff, but it is, like you said, it's getting harder and harder. So um, show, by showing 
for example, I don't think that cinema ever showed the three stooges, but I'm a big three stooges fan. And that's one of my first memories of attending Cinevent was being in the dealer room and, and seeing Alex Bartosh in his little closet projecting three stooges films that he had for sale. And so I wanted to incorporate that. And so we're doing that this year. Um, and also we have the Charlie Chase film program. We have, um, instead of we do Laurel and Hardy's as well. Uh, we also decided to do our gang silent films a few years ago. So we're continuing that tradition. Although classic slicks just is, announced that they're now talking about the doing restorations those. Of the silence. Yeah. Right. So we might have to switch. We, we talked about maybe doing Max Davidson or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's always stuff out there that we can show. Yeah. Now everything is in 16 millimeter. Um, mm-hmm. And, there's, I mean, so that kind of, it cuts you out of, you know, the more recent restorations. It's still very much a, a class, a collector's festival, not a festival that's going to the archives and things like that. Um, what do you, I mean, how how does that all work? You just know these guys and it's like, hey, you got anything new? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> we have people update their lists. Um, we... We there. We've talked about maybe working with the George Eastman House, but we have we have to you know fill out paperwork and all that stuff since we're a new convention. So potentially that could happen. But uh, 16 millimeter is what we're capable of showing. We are doing xenon projection this year, which is new. Um, so we're we're trying to make sure that it's a pleasant viewing experience, that it doesn't feel like you're in your grandpa's basement and he's projecting right. you these old movies. <laughs> um, but we. <laughs> We do try to show, um, we want film, you know, everything's going digital. And so, I mean, the fact that it's a film convention is a little bit of an old hat kind of thing anyway, just in and of itself. But then to also show real film, that's also something that you can't get in most places anymore. So that's sort of special. That's why our convention is something that you should come out to, you know, instead of sitting at home and watching movies digitally or you know on your streaming service it's not even on disc anymore right Discs. that's so old-fashioned yeah um, <laughs> it really is <laughs> i know i know the thing that i do that i hate myself for doing is i'll own a disc of something and i'll see it's on streaming and i won't bother to like go up and get my disc that i paid for i'll just put it on you know put on the streaming version of it and watch it yeah, I've been guilty of that. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about uh, the collector side. I mean, there's big collector rooms in the hotel. Uh, the much nicer hotel, I should say, uh, that it's been <laughs> in the last few years. Tell me about, uh, you know, who are the collectors these days and what what do they sell that, that actually sells and what, you know, all that? So the dealer room is huge. We have hundreds of tables set up in there. Um, people sell anything from film to movie paper is a really big one. So you'll see one sheets on the walls, half sheets, inserts, lobby cards. There's stills. You can go through stacks and stacks of stills. You could spend hours going through them. Um, people sell like kitschy kind of things like tchotchkes and you'll see sometimes like little laurel and hardy dolls and things like that um people sell records you can get movie soundtracks uh you can get um you know your home video dvds blu-rays vhs tapes laser discs 
all of that kind of stuff. So it's definitely full, like Cinevent and the Columbus Movie Picture Show too will be a great place for people who like stuff, who want, who are collectors <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's, and it's kind of amazing that there there's still kind of a market for almost anything. I don't know about Laserdiscs. I got a lot of those, and I never watch mine, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's really a repository of all old formats. Um, mm-hmm. Some sometimes I, you know, every once in a while I'll see. Do you know what Fairchild is? The Fairchild yeah. system. Okay, um, I've seen those once or twice. It was if you had a pizza parlor and you wanted to show Laurel and Hardy on the wall, they were basically like, like eight tracks for movies. They were like eight millimeter film inside this cassette thing, and you'd play. That but that way you didn't have to have some kid who had like greasy you know pepperoni grease on his fingers coming and threading film or anything like that it, it, you know it would just play itself automatically, but every once in a while you did it see play the, on a loop. Basically, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how it worked, but it it had a way. It didn't rewind. I don't think it just. It's like it fed itself in some way that wound up. This is going to be so obscure to people listening to this. Uh, <laughs> fed itself in some way that it wound up back at the beginning and you could just play it again so first time i ever saw i wonder if that's yeah like at the ground round that's what i'm that's what I'm yeah which is a place that i never got to visit but i would have loved it yeah no the first time i ever saw charlie chase was uh, at a pizza parlor i didn't know who he was but i saw the heckler there and you know so then you know that that was probably a a uh, pivotal moment in my development in some fashion. So. I first saw that at Cinevent. That's great. Yeah. I love that one. <laughs> um, well, let's look at, uh, all right, I'm trying to find on my phone here what the, what the program film screen. No, where'd we go? Uh, <laughs> I've lost the program. <laughs> Tell me about the program while I look for it. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what's happening this year? Uh, lots of stuff is happening this year. We have pre-code films. We have Love Among the Millionaires with Clara Bow, one of her talkies. We Which have, everyone knows um, is a poster, really. You know, we've all seen the poster oh, yep. for that, but who's ever seen the movie? So Exactly, yep. And uh, we're showing Murder at the Vanities, if you like pre-codes, the sweet marijuana number. We are showing um, the Ted Lewis biopic, uh, Is Everybody Happy?, and we're showing Hold That Ghost with Abbott and Costello, which Ted Lewis also appears in. We're going to have Nick Santa Maria do an introduction for the Abbott and Costello because he's got a book coming out on the team. And then he's going to be doing a seminar. We're all, we also have seminars in addition to the film program. We have a print of Top Banana starring Phil Silvers and Rosemary, which is really it's been out there but it's difficult to see uncut we've got the uncut version it's got 15 extra minutes in it um we are showing one of the movies i'm really excited about which i don't know if anybody else is but i certainly (laughs) is called stork bites man it's a jackie cooper movie from later in his career and it's based on a book which i really enjoyed about the man's perspective of a pregnancy (laughs) but it's very old-fashioned and it's so I can't wait to see that one. Um, let's see. Silent movies. We're showing a silent fragments program, which is three movies that only exist in clip form, basically. 
So they're 20 minutes, about about 20 minutes each. We're showing A Kiss in the Dark, which is an Adolf Manju film. Uh, the Wanderer, which the, the cut down is called The Feast of Ishtar, but it's a biblical epic kind of patterned after the Ten Commandments. And we're showing The Forbidden Woman, which is a Jetta Goodall film. So that will be interesting. That's something you probably won't see anywhere else. <laughs> right. Right, and that's that's the thing you get people going. Oh, I'm I'm here to see the Jetta Goodall movie, you know. Right. Yeah, I always, uh, you know, think of these kind of conventions are the kind of place where, you know, Humphrey Bogart or Joan Crawford's name can appear on the screen and nothing happens, but then it'll say Neville Brand and people will be going, yeah, clapping, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's Master the beauty Bayula. of it. That's yeah. when you realize that you found your group. Right. You know, you go and, and someone else knows who that is. Well, yeah, it's my friends. And it's funny. It really, it's so easy to make friends at these conventions because talk everybody is of yes, they're like-minded. Yeah. Now I remember um, this to always kind of summed it up to me. This happened at Cinestation, which is another Ohio festival that's no more, but. Uh, mm-hmm. We were talking after the show. It's probably like getting close to one a.m. and nobody wanted to like go to back to their hotel. And someone brought up the nineteen thirty three film Deluge and started to say, "Except the only print." And like six people all went, "Has burned in Italian titles." Everybody knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Just blurted like, tell it us out. something we don't already know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I actually did find the program. I don't know why I was so clueless about that. Um, <laughs> let's see what else there is. Yeah, so the, I mean, there's there's the Charlie Chase program was like an annual tradition, so you're still doing that. Um, mm-hmm. You said there was is the Laurel and Hardy one happening? That was another tradition. Are you doing other things? Yeah, to, there's singles. There's singles in between. So like, okay. um, I think I think Thursday and Saturday we're showing one. Okay. And then you've got a serial, which is always interesting to see, though, usually done, I mean, like you have it here, where you've got three chapters in a row, so it's like an hour program of putting three of yeah. them back to back. Uh, but, you yeah. know, whoever sees a serial, so. Yeah, and that's the thing. We we know that there are those niche groups that love those kinds of things, and you can't see them anywhere else, so come to our show. Come to the picture show and watch a serial. So how how has the audience been holding through recent years? Has it stayed fairly stable? That's hard to say because of COVID. Um, I know in October, our attendance was definitely down, but I think that was partly because we had to change the date and then partly because we had a mask mandate. And so people just kind of stayed away. I'm hoping that this year things will kind of get back to normal, but we'll see. I'm not sure. <laughs> I can yeah. only hope, you know. Yeah. Anything else exciting about uh, this year's or, you know, you're, what you're excited about <laughs> being responsible for? <laughs> I, I'm i just, if people say, oh, well, it seems like Cinevent, I will be happy because that's the intention. You know, I couldn't keep the name, but I can keep the sentiment and, you know, the convention as closely as possible to Cinevent, which is you know, the point, because that show meant so much to me. 
And, you know, it's something I look forward to every year. You see conventions folding all the time. Cinefest is no more. Cinestation is no more. That Cincinnati old-time radio convention is no more. So if I can do my part, you know, for the war effort and <laughs> keep the convention going, then I'm going to do it. Hey, I'm a boy that's craving joy. I dread, oh, I dread the blues that make you sad. You know, folks, there's a smile for every tear that's shed. Yes, sir. So tell me why, oh, why should you feel bad? Don't you do it. You know, Miss Pollyanna, the little joy girl, she was right. And that's why I ask you all tonight to tell me, is everybody happy? Oh, say, that's all I want to know. Oh, do 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 I'm going places, all I want are traces of your smiling faces. Don't look down and wear a little frown, just look, look for rays of sunshine. Oh, they're bound to be found. The Columbus Moving Picture Show is May 26th through 29th. The link for the site, containing the film schedule, lists of dealers, and more, will be at nitrateville.com. Komiki, as we learned from Dana Stevens recently, that's how you pronounce it, was Roscoe Arbuckle's studio in the teens. It's also the name of a sort of magazine put out by some classic comedy buffs that aims to evoke the good old days of fans writing about vintage comedians and classic comedies, not least by designing it like a real magazine, not just a web page that looks different on every browser. David B. Pearson is one of the editors and the one responsible for that vintage look and feel. The second issue just came out a couple of weeks ago. I spoke with David B. Pearson from his home in Picayune, Mississippi. The actual in, 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 word is actually in French. It's, it, uh, it's supposed to be uh, comique. But Arbuckle and Keaton, uh, back in the, uh, the teens, poked fun of it by calling it uh, comique. They were kind of poking fun of the artistic guy. And it wasn't just like Bugs Bunny not knowing how to pronounce Albuquerque or anything like that? Oh, no. They, they, they were trouble to France. They knew exactly what the word meant. You know, Arbuckle Ar- 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 tried there in the teens and Keaton was there during the war. Right. Okay, well, let's talk about, now that we know how to pronounce it, let's talk about uh, what it is. Uh, what was the idea here? Well, the way it developed was is after we started with with, with the uh, the International Buster Keaton Society with the Damn I had taken over the uh, layout of the thing, and I had the idea of making PDFs for them. For many years, Page Advice had, 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 had done it on paper and did it basically in an eight-page newsletter. I said, well, what's, if we're going on the web with it, why not uh, make it to a PDF and expand it? She had, had this big backlog of stories. I was able to, to, to fill it with material. And that lasted about two years, and basically we started running out of stuff. And then Paul Grucky said, hey, you know, we can make it turn this into a thing for all the comedians. And I said, yeah, that'd be a great idea. Why don't we? And uh, I said, why don't we call it Kamiki? Who were the people that you thought would want to commit an, an actual researched article to this thing? Well, of course, we, we had the Keaton people, and, and with, with Paul, we had the, the uh, we had connections with Warren Hardy groups. And when we had that, it started turning. It started to, to um, start to roll because then we were able to say, "Hey, we've got these people here. 
why don't you come join us? And, and, and basically, a whole bunch of people came on board after that. Why did you want to do something in basically a print format as opposed to just putting it online in some convenient way? A win-win situation because they could put it online and also they could print it out in, 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 in book form. And that way it can uh, take advantage of both books uh, formats. Basically, if you want to read it on the web, you could. Or if you want to see on paper, you could. Basically, we print it out in high resolution. So we could later on, you know, make it actually successful. We could turn it into a, a, a magazine for publication, book-wise. The big advantage of being a PDF is it's free. We'll get it out to anybody who can, can, who's interested in the subject. You know, we can promote uh, film comedy, especially silent film comedy. All right, so you did one of these in when the f- first one came out, 2020, 2019? came around Thanksgiving of, of 2020. Okay. And did that one ever become an actual printed thing? No, we were going to wait until we get this, got this one out because we figured one by itself would be yeah. too big for a magazine. We figured two together we could volume it and turn it into a book. Well, and I also think with anything like this, uh, one tends to look like a one-off. You know, it's when you get the second one out that you think, yeah, yeah this might actually stick around a little. Yeah, well, that, that was the idea. Well, we didn't expect that was was. was Paul had a, a uh, accident, right, and it caused a big delay in, in their production, and so it was almost uh, almost sixteen months before we got the second one out. Right. When do you think the the third one will come out? Um, well, everything goes well. We hope to get it out by Christmas. Okay, so speeding up yeah. that's at least, yeah. Yeah. Well, the weeks we won't. One of the side effects of the backlog was that the. We had all this material coming in to uh, produce this thing, and, and, and the first one was 160 pages, and this one was 224, and, and, and we better keep making these things <laughs> as fast as possible, or we're going to overwhelmed. Right. And, 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 and the amazing thing was we got all these quality writers, to, to, you know, people like uh, Chris Sagan and, and, and Ed Watts and Sam Gill, and, and of course my favorite, uh, being here from Louisiana, Richard Robert's. <laughs> All right, so the content is coming from all over, but it all comes to you in Mississippi, and so that's that's where this this thing really comes from. People all over North America, all over the areas, film stories, and I make it here in an obscure place in Picayune, Mississippi, which is a, which is a which is a little a little town about twenty five miles or well, fifty miles outside New Orleans. Okay, and basically, you don't, which is probably the least likely spot in America that it would be produced. The South is not known for being on, on the cusp of Hollywood material. Hey, I was just in Oxford uh, a few months ago and going to William Faulkner's home. So, well, the irony is, is there are uh, pretty good writers here in Mississippi because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I grew up in Kansas, and that's that's very much how I feel. Those of us interested in something had to stick together and support each other because. There were few enough yeah. of us, so. Yeah, but as I wrote in my, my St. Clowns article, it's like New Orleans itself, which is the big city in this area. Sure. Even that was not terribly receptive silent film, so over here it's, it's just impossible. So you don't have like a film society doing these in a Elks Hall or anything like that? Well, for all practical purposes, I am the film society. You are the film society, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere I go, I become the film society. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I was grilling you a little bit about why do it in magazine format, but there is something actually pleasurable as someone who's done layout myself about having everything just where it's supposed to be and the web can't mess that up. And Komike is very, uh, very uh, attractive in that way. I particularly like uh, your piece on... Um, or three pieces really on Walter Kerr's The Silent Clowns, which imitates the look of that coffee table book very well. I looked long and I, I looked long and hard at that at, at, at Kerr's book before I made it. Well, let's talk about. I mean, let's talk about some of the articles, but we'll start with that one of yours. Uh, what did you write about uh, Kerr's The Silent Clowns, which I think most of us regard as kind of a seminal, uh, influential book on silent comedy though by now many years old 50 some years old you know kind of represents a certain state in in the appreciation and preservation of silent film that you know we're well past well first of all i had the design already in, in mind for it and i figured if i was going to do it i would have to do it in at least three three parts that way fit the motif of the, of the book and so i said well i need Obviously, I need to write one chapter about the, the good in it, and, the second, and then real criticism about how times have moved on. And the third one, wrapping it up, you know, talking about how the after effects of the thing. And the uh, and then I said, well, what the heck? Burr uh, had this way of talking about his own past. I said, why don't I use my own uh, stories about my own childhood? And the first part of it, to, to give it a curve feel to it. I traveled into that way with the story. Uh, it would make the curve fit, the curve book would fit better into it that way. And basically, curve was such a big influence on my, on my own film studies and so on. So I, I had a lot of fun with it. The thing about Kerr's book now is that so many things have changed in what we get to see and what we know. Well, that's the irony of it is, is that uh, when he wrote the book, he probably had seen hundreds of films, and uh, and someone like me had seen nothing. And now, 40 years later, because it's stuck in time, he's still seen hundreds of films, and, that's, and I have, <laughs> and, 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 and I'm not the only one. We have thousands of silent film comedies that they're access to. And you talk about Arbuckle, Ar- for instance, and sure. I mean it just was not wasn't accessible in his era, and so yeah. it's just very different now that, uh, you know, there's all these films we can see. I mean, we can see pretty obscure things from his career, like the Roundup. Uh, oh, sure. And and especially the, the, the actual, and I say this with, with some irony, the Kamiki stuff was, was mostly absent. And all he had really access to was Butcher uh, Boy and Coney Island and a couple other films. Right. Another thing is, of course, we know so much more about the Langdon situation now than we did back then. Yeah. And with, with all the business with Frank Capra. And of course, I, of course, Lloyd was, Lloyd was shortchanged at, at the time because I think he, Kurt was so eager to push Keaton that Lloyd got pushed in the background. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it always seems yeah. like someone writing about that period is doing it on behalf of certain people, particularly Keaton. I mean, James Agee, the main beneficiary mm-hmm. of his famous essay was Keaton because Keaton was the one who was alive and you know, and still working at that point. But yeah, it's like, it, it produces this, you talk about this, it produces that, you know, kind of hierarchy of the stars, which I don't think is is typical in any other area. It's not like people go, yeah, top top actor of all time, Clark Gable, number two, Humphrey Bogart, 
after that, the hell with them. You know, anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, it's kind of like what kind of happens here. But at the time he wrote the book, you know, it was like Chaplin was so far ahead of everybody. It was like a you had to put forward someone, and, 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 it was, and at the time Buster was 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 was, was a good choice. Yeah. Now in context today, it's like, wow, he pushed Keaton, but everybody else kind of got pushed in the background. It's like, yeah, hey, what about these other guys? Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's kind of weird because it's basically, from the perspective of the Chaplin perspective, is it's like, wait, was somebody's else here? Is another one that's going for the crown here? Like <laughs> I think this is the unconscious bias, but we assume that features are the ultimate goal of every comedian, which is simply not true at all. I mean, there are no, lots of people no, no, no. Ma- made a living off of, you know, two reelers and one reelers all through the silent period and in, into the sound no, period. No, no, short film is clearly the form. Uh, the, 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 I think the, the, the big guys went to the features simply because there's a lot more money there. Right. Chaplin and, and Lloyd mainly, when they did features, had much more dramatic material in there. Keaton kind of worked around that too by using a kind of a um, symmetry in his films. Like we one, he would be um, playing the fool in the first two reels, right, and then playing the smart guy in the second two reels, counteracting. And for that, and the four reels spread it out to to the feature form. You, you see that form in things like uh, Sherlock Jr. and Navigator and, and the General and things like that. Well, and yeah, particularly, I mean, the one I always think especially like that is Seven Chances, which. Yeah. The first half is kind of lightly enjoyable, and the second half is maybe his greatest film ever. But it's only the ha- yeah. that half of the movie. So yeah, well, that's the thing is, is the first part is actually the play. The second half is, is, is lampoon of the play. Yeah, but he, you know, he, you know, he hated that film. By the way, he, he did not like farce comedy at all. Huh? Yeah, the the um, oddity of it is, is that he made Bowie Butler not like the play at all. The play is uh, exactly the opposite of his actual film. It's a farce coming. Anyway, anyway, I'm sidetracking way too far. <laughs> that's okay. No, I think. Well, I think that's the pleasure of this thing is getting sidetracked in a bunch of different directions. Uh, you know, I didn't expect Spike Jones to turn up in it, but there's an article on Spike Jones. So yeah, we we, we hope we hope you step on, on early TV. I'd love to have us do something on Jackie Gleason, for example. I think that'd be a lot of fun. We do all kinds of classics. We're mainly doing silent comedy stuff, but. I don't see any reason we can't do classic television uh, as well. And it's, and it's also old-time radio. Uh, we have this big photo, big ad in there for Jack Benny this, this last issue. Anyway, the whole the whole concept is, is we do anything in classic comedy up to up to 65 or so. But we are, we're doing uh, LP records and things like that with comedy with skits. And, and the first issue we did this big long thing on Evan Costello on you know, the radio uh, Let's talk about some of the other ones here. John Bankson, who has been on this podcast, talks about yeah. uh, talks about Keaton smiling scandal. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we we found yeah. proof that Keaton can smile. Oh yeah, no, the, and again, he does the Kamiki connection. This mostly happens during the Kamiki films. Um, but the uh, it was kind of the hook for us because basically we said we have to finish part two because we because he had part one. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, did a great job finding all those examples. It's neat. It's like there must be there must be fifty photos of Keaton smiling in those things. Paul Garucki writes one on whether or not uh, Curly Howard was in a couple of films after his stroke, um, and pretty yeah. conclusively demonstrates yes, that's him. Uh, sure. 
as the chef with the big mustache uh, after sure. he, had, he had lost a bunch of weight. We get down to comparing ear curls. Yeah, and, and, the, ring, and the ring on the middle finger and all that, too. Yeah. But most of that article about, you know, how he probably had the stroke and how Trump had to replace him. The thing is, on Happy Thoughts, we actually produced the contract where, where all four of them, you know, the, all three Howard brothers and, and, and uh, Barry Fine all signed this contract explaining what, what, what had happened. Anyway, but it, but it was it, it's the original uh, of, the, of the of the contract, and it was a lot of fun to recreate that for the, you know, the magazine. And another thing I was happy about was us producing uh, both scripts from the Sammy Ford for WC Fields. Yeah, tell tell me about that. Uh, this was a sketch that he that he did. Yeah, he did this in the in the twenties on, on on stage, and uh, we, Paul had actually had uh, both copies. He had both the uh, the traditional copy and also the uh, rare earlier version of it. So was was it one of the sketches that he kept revising and reworking? Because I remember in. Uh, Simon Louvish's book, he showed how, like the uh, the famous back porch sketch from "It's a Gift," you know, goes back to about 1900 in its earliest versions. Is this is this like yeah. that? Yeah, it actually is. It's from that pretty much. Okay, it's kind of funny. We had photos of him both from the uh, doing the same um, physical gags from from both the play and photographs of the play, photographs of the shooting, uh, him posing. And doing the same thing in 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 the thirties, after after he got rid of that very dashing mustache he used to have. <laughs> but the family Ford didn't ever make it into film onto film in any way. Yeah, it's a gift. Oh, okay, it is in that. Yeah, yeah part of it is. Yeah. Well, I just gave away that I haven't actually read the article. <laughs> My apologies. No, it's okay. But 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 the script though is is. is Get both first notes, so it's So it showed that Fields was constantly working the material. So, yeah. Um, there you go. Um, and then another one that I, now this one I did read right off the bat. Uh, Ed Watts talking about working for the notorious Raymond Rohauer. Uh, oh, that's a show. That's a show piece. I had a lot of fun helping with that. Too, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fun. I, I was, especially made me love making these. Um, Sidebars. I made, I recreated 35 millimeter film strips, and uh, and I put blood red RRs on. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he had this really, and he had this really cheesy font. He would like from center at the end, and I put his own name in it. So that was cool. Like Roman Rahar presents, and he would put Buster Keaton, and it's like something out of like the 1890s or something, and it's like, and then I recreated that. That was fun. The legend of Rohar may yeah. be fading at long last, but many people. Oh, 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 oh Rohar was a monster. Yeah. <laughs> In my youth, I got to experience both sides of Rohar. He could be a very nice man and a real evil so-and-so. I just remember, you know, when uh, Keaton's films came out on Laserdisc, I actually wrote the review f- or kind of a piece about it for uh, Video Watchdog. And mm-hmm. they got they got two letters about what I said about Rohauer. Uh, in the next issue, one was, you know, how how can you attack this saint of film preservation? You know, lies, lies, it's all lies. And the other person said, Raymond Rohauer would steal the mayo off a ham sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, 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 both of those are probably true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so there's a nice history of uh, him and his various uh, forms of film preservation and desecration i guess yeah one of the wonderful things we put in the magazine is we're able to link things out outward with the pdf it's one bench of the pdf over the book 
And we, we, we linked in the, uh, in the middle of the Rohauer story, we, we linked in David Shepard's uh, lampoon of, of, of Rohauer. Yes. Doing, <laughs> doing the Snee. If you've not seen it, it's hilarious because it's basically, it's a two or three minute um, film. Of the, and the film itself is actually like two seconds long. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so it's three minutes of Rohauer crediting himself. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but, yeah, but it shows you the Rohauer... Um, his reputation was such that that, that he they could do that and get away with it. And, and, uh, yeah. And according to uh, a lot of people, Rohauer actually loved that lampoon because he he it's it so all right. There's a famous story about when he was in the theater, his name came up presenting something, and it got massive boos throughout the audience. You see, and they turned around and said, "You see, they know my name." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else that you want to talk about that's that's in this issue, in particular? Well, I, I like Chris Sagan's uh, re- redoing of his uh, Harry Langdon. He, he writes this long article about uh, how Harry Langdon uh, his influences on on, on Hal Roach's studios and with Warren Hardy especially. Which, ironically, he was a substitute uh, Laurel at one point. Which is kind of weird because Laurel was kind of a substitute Langdon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then, and of course, uh, Richard Roberts has a really nice article on, on Lupino Lane. Yeah, and that's it. He talks about Kerr, too, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, you know, says Kerr was underappreciative. And, and again, it's just, you know, how much could you see then? Yeah, there's some irony that we, we wrote simultaneously on the same software. Kerr's name comes up like two or three or four times, I think. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it is yeah. a big, influential book that, you know, a lot of us love rightly, but at the same time, I mean, I don't know, when was it published? 77 or 78? I forget exactly. Uh, 75. 75, okay. You yeah, know, yeah. a few things have changed since then. Oh, yeah. Well, 75 is amazing. Anybody can see anything. It's so hard to do all these different archives and so forth. And I think part of, part of the problem with Harold Lloyd is, is that he had caused his own problem because it was so hard to access his material that nobody was talking about him very much. Oh, well, but he did reissues of some of them. Yeah, but only, but only because only because I think he got caught by Robert Youngston doing everybody else except White. All right. Well, the you know, so there's quite a lot here, and as as you say, it's all free, or eventually there'll be a way to have it nice and pretty with with a hardcover and everything. And yeah, you know, everybody wants to do a hardcover of it, and so I guess that's the next step. And then and they'll go on to number three, and of course we're going to be working on on uh, Rocky's book. Arbuckle, which has been long awaited. It's about time, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely waiting for some of those things that uh, he's promised that got held up yep. most recently by the freak accident he had. Not, not fun. No, but he's got a lot of he has a lot of projects, and they're all kind of like competing with each other, getting things done. Right. Uh, but and then and then we then we need to get back and do committee number three. Okay. Any previews that you want to give of what's going to be in the next one? Um, just to say that we're finally going to turn to Mr. Chaplin. Okay. An obscure comedian who's been left out so far. Yeah, it's kind of like we, we, we said, well, Chaplin will wait because we all these other people who aren't known that well. And then we said, well, we've got everybody else. And people think we're, if we don't do something with Charlie, they think, <laughs> they think we're snubbing him. The Chaplin people have been very nice with us, too, because they've, they've uh, uh, helped us uh, get some photos for Charlie. So, it was oh, like, nice. so, so at this point, we, we feel we, we need... We, we need to give the payback to Charlie, you know, push him. So he's probably going to be our cover figure. 
it's kind of like we're trying not to do Buster because basically we're so tied to the, the Buster thing that we don't want to go too 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 heavily with that. But you know, but anyway, but everybody uh, did, did a lot of nice stuff with us. It helped us. Everybody's helped us an awful lot with doing these things, and we hope to keep making them. It's nice to you know have something print like talking about the you know these old mediums uh it does feel a little funny sometimes to to focus so much on old film using the latest online technology to me and there's there's something you know, pleasing about paper in your hand well, well that's true too the, the whole idea of thinking was for to be able to um uh, pick it up and saying, "Wow, this book is a magazine of the 1930s or 40s or something yeah. like that." And, and uh, I actually had a friend saying, "You know, you, you make one mistake, and I said, what is it? You have this advertisement for COVID, and that's, that's going to be the one thing in the magazine that's going to be dated because basically, <laughs> sure. We, but anyway, we, we we tend to we do intend to make a print version. Everybody, and that's one of the ironies of this is, is that um, we kind of misjudged the audience a little bit because basically. We thought everybody would love to see the PDF, and everybody said, "Yeah, we like the PDF, but we want to see it in paper." Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Let's talk about the reception for it. Uh, how, do you have numbers for like how many people have downloaded or read through it, or anything like that? Archive says that the first one had about twenty five hundred downloads. Nice. And this one's had six hundred so far, but it's only been out a week, and it'll probably surpass the, the second one based on the numbers and so forth. But yeah, but basically, basically it's all word of mouth and me posting things on Facebook to let people know we've done it. And of course, on Nitrateville and other other spots, the actual reaction from people we've never we've not gotten any negative criticism. Uh, but generally, it's been extremely positive from everybody. So for the most part, I did get one note from somebody, some film historian said, "I don't watch what this Pearson guy said. I don't agree, but then often he read it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm happy with it. Issue 2 of Kamiki is out now. A link for the free PDF will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. remarkable thing sprang into life. A box office hit for Boris Karloff, James Whale, and Junior Lemley, the production chief betting his father's studio that Dracula wasn't a fluke, 
and 1931's Frankenstein was the future. The story of that creation is told by novelist Julian David Stone in his new novel, It's Alive, coming out May 17th from Greenleaf Book Group Press. Stone, who's been a rock concert photographer and a screenwriter, became a novelist with 2013's The Strange Birth, Short Life, and Sudden Death of Justice Girl, which took us inside 50s superhero television. Now he takes us inside the heads of the men who brought us the horror genre. We spoke from his home in L.A. So you you wrote a book about uh, Frankenstein. You know, a lot of people write... Uh, making of books uh this is the first book at all that i've done on this podcast that was uh, a novel though a fiction novel uh tell me why you decided to write this and go that way with it sure absolutely well you you kind of nailed it there are quite a few uh, non-fiction books and my background is as a screenwriter and also a fiction writer and when i sort of dwelled into the world I just thought of this, it would be a fascinating story to tell it in this form instead of just nonfiction, but to fictionalize it so I could take you into places that I'm, you know, fascinated with, which is universal at this time, Jack Pierce's makeup room, all the things that as fans of this genre and old Hollywood that I could really bring to life, I felt I could do it much more effectively in the form of a novel. I think one of the things that decides whether or not you can tell a story like this as nonfiction is just how much survives on it where mm -hmm. uh in this case you can you know you can create to some extent these characters who have the names of famous people and stuff like that so exactly uh, yeah tell me who tell me who the main characters are here sure so my my novel it's alive tells the story of the three days leading up to the production of the classic 1931 Frankenstein. And the main characters are Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. And sort of the, the absolute main character is, is a guy named Junior Lemley, or Carl Lemley Jr., who was the son of Carl Lemley, who started Universal Studios. And Junior Lemley is, was put in charge of the studio at the age of 21 uh, in 1929, as a as a birthday gift and junior <laughs> is the person i know not, nice nice gift <laughs> um and junior is the one responsible for making all these films that all of us fans of universal monsters and old hollywood uh love he's the one that wanted made dracula frankenstein and and all the others that started the uh the great universal monster cycle yeah it's interesting i mean you you stress that even though universal had to some extent fame for really creating the monster movie when Lon Chaney was there in the early 20s, mid-20s, that Carl Sr. was not terribly fond of that sort of thing and, and resistant to Junior's interest in that kind of subject matter. Absolutely. You know, they did make Phantom of the Opera and they had made, had made Hunchback, but those were sort of lumped in as classics of literature where these other films, when Junior wanted to make them, Carl Sr. was absolutely against them. He, he didn't want anything to do with them. And then after they were successes, he freely admits it was all junior and, and they, you know, the films did very well. But initially, uh, they actually did exceptionally well. Um, initially, he was not for them at all. He felt that it was just not the direction he wanted the studio to go. When Junior took over the studio, 
he wanted to change the way his father had done business. Obviously, it was an incredibly successful business, but he felt that they weren't quite competing in the same league as some of the other studios at the time, like Paramount and MGM. And he wanted to move them kind of up into making bigger films. And that's what he set about doing. And among them were, were the horror films. Yeah, no, it's, I've always said it's interesting that, uh, you know, Universal has been one of the major studios for, you know, most of the 20th century. And yet, yeah, if you look at the times that they won Best Picture, basically it was all quiet on the Western Front uh, in 1931, and then really not again until The Deer Hunter in 1978. I mean, technically they distributed Hamlet, but, you know, they, they kind of stuck with their Westerns for rural audiences and mm-hmm. sort of lower level, you know, just kind of second tier, even given their size and commercial importance. No, absolutely. It is an interesting history, even after the Lemleys left, uh, lost the studio in 1936, but the studio kind of after they left kind of started making, like you said, slightly lesser fare still, you know, was a major studio, but it was really, I believe it was in the fifties and in the early sixties where Lou Wasserman came in and really embraced television that kind of took them, like they kind of got ahead of all the other studios and really put them up at the top of the pack. And then, like you said, they eventually sort of got back onto the, uh, you know, making the the big films and winning the awards. Kind of like what would ultimately happen with Disney, you know, put them right, on the top right. now. But a, lo- a long history of being not not among the very tip top. Um, right. So, all right. So Junior Lemley, what's what's interesting about him? I mean, it, clearly his uh, ambition is the... Yeah, well, you know, 21 years old running a movie studio <laughs> is, yeah. is incredibly fascinating. And when I started doing the research into him, and that's, again, one of the reasons I wanted to write it as a fictionalized account, there isn't a lot on him. To me, he's a really fascinating character that's been kind of lost. And particularly, like I said, he's the one who's really, you know, who launched this whole thing. You know, the way, uh, you know, these beloved films, the way I sort of like to describe it, I would never claim he invented the horror film, but you can certainly make a good argument that he might be the single person most responsible for horror becoming a genre. Because, you know, when he runs the studio, it's Dracula, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, the Mummy, Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, he makes all those films and they are the, you know, they're the beginning. They're the groundwork of this cycle of Universal Monsters, which is really the beginning of of horror. Yeah, yeah. No, it it is kind of the first franchise to use the term they use now. Right. But at a time when Hollywood didn't really do sequels that much and tended not you know someone a star might be in a genre like romantic comedy but not hitting the same thing over and over the way they use right. Bor- boris karloff or something right yeah. right and it, and and i the, the whole cycle beyond you know just the beginning uh, you know it's obviously beloved and, and i love it that they they start with the original films then they make the sequels then they do the mashups you know they start right. putting the monsters together <laughs> in the movies and then they make the comedies with Abbott and Costello. And just when it looks like the cycle is petered out, they come back with the three Creature from the Black Lagoon movies that are kind of a mini cycle on their own. They do the original, the right. sequel, and then maybe not intentionally, but the Creature Walks Among Us is kind of a little silly. And, you know, you might lump it in as the comedy, you know, yeah. at the end, like, like the whole thing. But it, it's such a great 25-year cycle there. It's just wonderful films. Yeah, I've always wondered why some of 
the ones today didn't really go in that direction. I mean, I think, you know, like John Hughes wrote a script that was called Jaws Three People Zero, but it was never produced. <laughs> and, oh, you know, it, I, it's like it would have been the Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein of, of Jaws movies, but I think they decided, you know, not to, not to push it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, Universal has been trying for the last five or six years to relaunch this whole thing. And it's, you know, it's uh, to me, a lot of it is the black and white. It's the, the amazing, you know, it's something that worked in a certain period of time. And I just, I don't know if it's going to work today. You know, the, the, the Tom Cruise mummy didn't do particularly well. And then they did that invisible man, or I think, uh, you know, but that was kind of on not even, it was universal, but it was a bloom house and it was kind of their other little label and it did well, but it wasn't really connected to the other one. It's, 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 I just don't know if you can really do it. You know, it's great that they want to do it, but I, I don't think you can just capture lightning in a bottle again, like they did in the thirties and the forties. Right. Yeah. No, not after Rankin Bass has already had their, <laughs> their shot. at, <laughs> at that. Um, yeah. All right. Let's talk about some of the other characters. I mean, the two sure. franchise stars, uh, to be, they, uh, one of them wasn't yet, uh, are certainly major characters in it. Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Absolutely. And, you know, another w- part of the story and the, the reason I wanted to tell it in a novel form was you have the two of them at the beginning. when, like I said, this takes place just before Frankenstein starts shooting when they're still, you know, trying to figure out uh, who's going to play the monster. A lot of people don't realize that originally Bor- or Bela Lugosi was supposed to play it. And there's even existing artwork pre, you know, pre-release artwork with his name on it. And through various machinations, which I talk about in the novel, it kind of went back and forth and they eventually settled on Karloff, but it wasn't until very close to the actual beginning of production. There's no mention of him playing the role anywhere until actually the, the film starts shooting and he doesn't even sign his contract until production has begun. And it's really fascinating that when, when you get to the beginning of, of Frankenstein or, or right before the production, Lugosi is probably at the biggest point of his entire career. Dracula has made him a star and he's riding high. And Karloff has been in something like 40 movies before uh, Frankenstein and isn't really known at all. He'd had little bit parts and he was getting by as an actor, but just getting by. And after this film, their fortunes just completely change. Right. And for the, re- you know, Karloff never stops working for the rest, rest of his life throughout his entire career, you know, up through even the sixties, he's, you know, this beloved actor who does commercials and everything. And, you know, as most people who are fans of these films know that Lugosi's career went through some rough patches and, you know, he kind of struggled on and off for the rest of his career. So it catches them right at this moment where it's about to change. And, you know, obviously anybody that's seen Frankenstein, everything that came to Karloff was deserved. He's just incredible in the film. To this day, I, I am just stunned by how good he is because for the research of this and just as a fan, I watched so many of his films and you just don't see any of him in this performance. He is just completely becomes this monster and and i hate even using that term because there's so much more to the character which is what he brought to it but he's just incredible in it and lugosi was amazing as dracula but you know with his language issues and other things it was a little harder for him going forward to to find you know roles that suited him yeah no i you know karloff is 
is so good. I mean, he's just, he's like a great character actor who was never cast in character actor roles. I mean, there's just a tiny handful of them, like House of Ross Shield or uh, Mm -hmm. Lured in the 40s, you know, some things like that. But, you know, they tended to just use him endlessly in the the horror genre and nothing else where I think, you know, if he'd been given more, you know, more roles that Henry Danielle got or something like that, you know, right, he would right, have killed in right. them because he's so good. I, I agree, but he seemed quite happy with, you know, like he said, you know, when he was asked years later, I, I all it all, I owe it all to the, you know, that Jolly Green Giant yeah. or whatever, you know, his <laughs> quote was, because, you know, he, he was 43 when he played the, you know, when he played that role. So he, He'd knocked around for a while, and I get into sort of his background. He had played, you know, all across the country in traveling theater where they were doing seven shows a week, you know, every night a different performance and just getting by. So he seemed quite happy with any typecasting that came his way. Yeah. Now, um, I mean, another major character in it, uh, well, really, there's there's the two directors who are sort of bouncing back and forth on who's going to do it, Robert Flory right. and James Whale. You know, tell me about them. Well, Flory's been kind of lost in all the discussion of Frankenstein because he actually wrote the first script. He's the one that sort of made the initial pitch, or, or at least Universal was going to do the film, and he wrote the very first draft from the book. So a lot of what's come to be known as Frankenstein, the movie, as opposed to the novel, was was his construction in the first draft. And then there were some other writers that were brought on uh, afterwards that kind of, you know, added a few things here and there, but that's kind of the part that's been lost is that he's really the one responsible for taking it from a novel and putting it for the first time in constructing it in the film version that we all know. And he was going to direct it until James Whale came along and became sort of a big shot at universal. Uh, He had done Waterloo bridge, which went over very well uh, with Universal uh, after they brought him in from England. So when he requested to do this project, they moved Flory off of it and put James Whale in charge of it. And Flory and Lugosi at the time didn't think they were so bad off for that because they were doing Murders in the Rue Morgue, which, you know, was uh, to Lugosi, it was a much more appealing uh, character because he's playing, you know, a bit of a mad scientist, but he, he, gets to speak he's not right you know, he's he saw the monster as as just you know this mute character it's like being in a gorilla suit almost exactly it was almost like you know the insult of hearing his whole time that oh you're not going to be able to make it because you have this accent then he becomes a huge star in dracula and then the next thing they offer him he doesn't speak at all so that's sort of part of the legend of why he, uh, you know, sort of debated, was he fired from the film? Did he quit? Even he sort of like changes the story, but right. for whatever reason he left it. And it is, you know, it is documented that he wasn't thrilled about the fact that the, uh, the character didn't speak. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that was definitely uh, an issue for him. Um, and, you know, Karloff, like I said, was in a position where he, he wasn't quite able to be at that point in his career, you know, he, he, he needed the work and he, you know, went at it wholeheartedly and, you know, we're, we're all the better off for it. Yeah. Now he was not under contract and you depict the issue for him was that he was working on a movie called the guilty generation at Columbia. Uh, and it overlapped with the start of Frankenstein. I mean, is that, that's based on reality? That is, that is, um, there, he, he, he does that film and, it's actually a pretty good role for him. But if you watch the movie, 
Um, uh, and, and I've read accounts that the director, like I fictionalized, or I tell in the story, but it is based on truth, did help him out by sort of speeding up the filmmaking. When, when it starts, you know, he's sort of, he's this gang boss and he's sort of giving orders in these scenes with lots of actors. And then as it goes along, his part kind of disappears a little from the movie. And then he has a couple scenes where he's just on the, on the phone. And it looks very much like how I portrayed it, that they sort of cut his stuff down so that he would get done earlier. Cause that is true. He was under contract to, uh, to do that film and it was supposed to go longer. And interestingly enough, the director of that, uh, Roland Lindell, I believe was his name, uh, actually is the one who eventually directed Karloff in Son of Frankenstein. Right, yeah. So uh, Roland so B. Lee. Why did I think yeah. Lindell? Oh. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know where I got that name from. But uh, uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, so it is kind of an interesting way and how it all played out. Yeah. Um, now, Whale, what, you know, I think, so much of what's good about the Universal Films is owed to the fact that he very much wanted to make these creatures sympathetic. Um, I feel like he was, to some extent, inspired by Conrad Veidt in The Man Who Laughs, another mm-hmm. earlier Universal horror film, which is very much about right. sympathy for the monster. Um what you know? Tell me about him and why he wanted to do this sort of thing. I mean, he could have done very masterpiece theater type dramas, uh, right? Well, well, I think I think you nailed it. He had a sense that he wanted the sympathy for it. He also liked that. If you you know sort of read accounts, he he liked the fact that it was kind of darker material, but he could have fun with it, and that's what that's really the magic, particularly of those five that were made while Junior was running the studio, is that they have this great combination of this. English sensibility combined with German expressionism, you know, that, that, that it doesn't get too heavy, you know, a film like Dr. You know, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is an amazing film, but it's a very heavy story. And he did such a great balancing act of bringing in a little bit of humor and a little bit of, you know, haven't you ever wanted to be, you know, bad or, you know, or, or do the wrong thing or do a dangerous <laughs> thing, you know, he, he brings in that quality of it. And that mixes so well with the German expressionism. And so that, that to me is what he brought to it. And I think he was attracted to that, that he could kind of be playful in this dark world, which sort of seemed to fit with his sensibility. Yeah. And really shaped the horror genre from then on. Right. Um, exactly. You know, we, we, we expect our horror with a little uh, wink of. Right. Know, I actually, I don't know if if the teens today do, but those of us who, <laughs> who grew up on older horror films certainly do. Um, right. All right. Well, getting back to Junior, who really is your central character, um, mm-hmm. tell me what uh, you know. What's he? You know, he wants to show that his ideas work for the future, and you know, conv- you know, get a promotion from his dad, which dad is sort of dangling in front of him through the whole book. <laughs> right. Right. Well, like I said, he comes in, you know, the father puts him in charge of the studio at the age of 21 and right out of the gate, even before he starts making the horror films, because he takes over in 1929, he starts making big films. He makes All Quiet on the Western Front, which you mentioned. He makes this huge color musical called Broadway that at the time was one of the most expensive um, films ever made. And he just wants Universal to be different because he thinks this is where the future 
of filmmaking is going. Sound has come in. You know, he comes in right at the beginning of sound. And so to him, you know, the movies have grown up and you know, the studio needs to go this this direction to survive. And that's what he starts doing. And along with that are the horror films. And like, you know, like we were saying, his father didn't necessarily agree with that. And they clashed with that during the time that that he or, or over that uh, during the time that he was running the studio. And he's just he's a really fascinating character, because if you if you read interviews with him, he kind of talks with a little bit of that 20s lingo. You know, <laughs> he, he was di- he was different than the other studio heads who were a little older and, you know, who who had sort of come up a little bit more hard scrabble life. Junior had had a, you know, he was born after Carl had gone into the film business, his father, and, you know, was successful. So he had a very cushy life, but he, he definitely, you know, felt that he wanted to, to move the studio to the next level and into the future. And he felt that he had the way to do it. And then, I mean, not to, not to give too much away, you sure. kind of find an analogy uh, between Frankenstein and his, you know, his creation as a as a movie studio mogul. Um, <laughs> did you want to talk right. about that? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that sort of as a writer, and again, as I started to get into this and doing all my research, that that you know, sort of that moment where everything sort of starts to come together is that what is Frankenstein ultimately? It's a father son story. It's a story of a creator disappointed with his creation. Well what is junior's relationship with his father, but a father son story with a creator disappointed with his creation. And, you know, that's the kind of thing as a writer, when you make those parallels, that's when the whole thing sort of explodes in your head. And, you know, I, I think junior was to some extent aware of that, you know, he was very drawn to this material and I sort of go into this in the book too. There is a very specific reason why he was also drawn to this darker material, you know, certainly darker than his father wanted to make and darker than the other studios were doing. They all kind of jumped on board after this, these movies did really well, but he was certainly the first to, you know, to get out there and start doing these films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fun, it's fun being just thrown into the middle of this, you know, this situation of, of the, the general panic before a movie finally starts production and, right. you know, and just the, the liveliness of it. I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like, you know, there's that mini series about the Godfather coming. Uh, right. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, we've all been watching movies and reading, reading about movies for so long. I mean, why, why haven't we had more, you know, mogul stories, uh, you know, right. how, how the movie happened. Uh, we had the bad and the beautiful and then nobody picked up on that afterwards, you know, took it further. So yeah, no, it's, I thought that was a lot of fun. I mean, obviously I, I know the film well, so that (laughs) means something to me, but uh, yeah, no, I I thought it was very, very enjoyable that way. So now I have to ask uh, thoughts for a, uh, for a sequel involving a bride or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I, I, I have other books I want to write. I don't know if necessarily uh, right. uh, in, in this, but, you know, certainly if somebody approached me, I'm certainly open to it. But, uh, you know, a junior story, I think, works particularly well in this time, though. I have thought you could make kind of a, you, you could go further with 
Lugosi and Karloff and talking about, you know, when they did start acting in films together, that did occur to me. And I do have some ideas of, of how to go forward with that storyline because, you know, they did, I think, ultimately end up, obviously they're not both in this movie, but I think they ended up in nine movies together over the right. years. And, and that's kind of an interesting story. And some of them are, you know, quite enjoyable movies. Yeah. Uh, most of them are. And so you could do something with that, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the black cat, you know, you get Ed Ulmer yeah. as a character, too. So, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's uh, seems promising. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, not, not to pick your next project for you. <laughs> right. It's Alive will be published May 17th by Greenleaf Book Group Press. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Samantha Glasser, David B. Pearson, and Julian David Stone, and to Paul Gerucki and Andrea Kalani Thatcher. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can't, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.